If we haven't met, my name is Mark, and I get the privilege of serving as the young adult pastor here. And uh, today we're in week five of a series. We've been studying the book of Revelation. Anybody been blessed by this study uh, through the first three chapters of this book? Um, maybe you're here for the first time and you go, dang, five weeks and a book of Revelation. I'll just say this. I, I know some of you are probably like, when are we just going to get over with this? Um, just think about it like this. If we were just doing a 15-week series on dating, you would come. But I'm here to tell you, the most important relationship is the one that we're going to focus on tonight, and that's our relationship with Jesus. So today, we're going to focus uh, our time in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at the church of Philadelphia today. I'm really excited to look at this church. And if you've missed any of the weeks, I, I want to kind of catch you up to speed. You see, uh, in week one, we hear about a man by the name of John. John, he's an apostle. He's a follower of Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples. And what we learn about John is he's been proclaiming the gospel. He's been sharing his testimony. And because of that, a group of people, they've got a problem with John sharing his testimony. So what do they do? They throw him on an island called Patmos where pretty much they leave him there to die. And John now finds himself exiled on this island called Patmos. Many scholars believe he's probably bandaged up because they threw him in a vat of boiling oil. But what we learn is, is John is on this island called Patmos. He gets a vision of Jesus. He gets a revelation of Jesus. Now, I want to just be clear here. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appears to John in a vision. John is not under the influence. Just need to make that clear. John, he is sitting on this island, and the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, appears. And as John sees Jesus, Jesus is standing in the middle of seven churches. He's standing in the middle of seven churches, the most influential churches in Asia in that day and age. And John hears from Jesus. Not only does he see Jesus, Jesus speaks to him, and he tells him, John, I want you to write down everything you see. So John, he starts writing down these different things, and Jesus then tells him, I want you to write out these specific things and share it with the seven churches. So today, we're going to look at what Jesus had to say to the church of Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up. If you don't, the verses will be on the screen. This is what Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia. It says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write... These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, and what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. He says, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door. Somebody say open door. An open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, since you've kept my command to, to wait on me, since you've kept my command to remain faithful, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on all of the world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I want to pause right there because today I want to speak from this idea, the open door. The open 
door. And I just love this text so much because we see Jesus communicating to the church of Philadelphia. He says, yo, I want you to set a reminder. You're doing great things, but I want you to continue to remain faithful to me. See, out of the seven churches, the church of Philadelphia is the only or the second only church that isn't confronted by Jesus or called out by Jesus. Instead, Jesus commends this church and he says, I want you to continue to remain faithful. And I know that you're going through a spot of difficulty, but trust me, things are going to change because I'm getting ready to open a door. I want to key in on verse 7 through 8, though. Look at what uh, John says. He says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right, these are the words of him who is holy. Somebody say holy. And true. Somebody say true. Who holds the key of David. But what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I don't want you to miss this. John, he says this, Jesus, he is holy and he is true. We got to zoom in on this. This is the man that is speaking. This man is holy and he is true. Jesus is reminding this church. John is reminding this church that this Jesus, he is holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. See, Jesus is set apart from the ways of the world because, yes, Jesus, he experienced life on earth for 33 years in a human form, but he never sinned. That's why he's set apart. So Jesus says, I am holy But not only am I holy, I am also true. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus saying he is true, he's trying to help this church understand. I'm going to make some clear promises to you. I'm going to tell you some things. But make no mistake, there is no false narrative behind what I'm telling you. See, it's important we understand. Truth isn't just a principle. Truth is a person. And the Bible says in John 14 that when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. I just want to remind some of you today, the truth or freedom isn't found in just knowing some biblical principles. Truth is found when you know the person of Jesus Christ. Truth can be found when you understand the heart of Jesus Christ. Jesus is truth. He says, I'm coming and I want you to be reminded, church, I am the one who is holy and true. I just think about it like this. Um. I think it's so funny, like, here I am, I'm 27, 26 years old, I always forget. Um, and I look back, and I can just think about, like, I know I'm not the only one I experience this. Anybody ever have that friend, like, as a, as a kid, they would be like, yo, like, one day I'm going to have you over my house. And when I have you over my house, like, you're going to see, like, we got 36 bedrooms. And, you know, like, we got 38 bathrooms. And in the backyard, we've got, like, a basketball court. And we've got a helicopter pad. Like, anybody ever have that type of friend? And they're like, I, I, I would hate this. They'd be like, you know, like, I'm going to have you over when my parents say it's okay. And that's never going to happen because you don't have any of that, right? I I think that it's so interesting, though. Like, sometimes we we believe the lies and we're baited along with the lies. But really, in this text, Jesus, he says, I'm a father of truth. But Satan, he is a father of lies. Why is it that so often our propensity is to believe the father of lies and not the father of truth? And so many of us, we've allowed the father of lies to direct and dictate the course of our lives. But Jesus, he says, I have a better way for you, church, because I am the father of truth. I'm the father of truth. But notice in verse 7, Jesus also says, I hold the key of David. I hold the key of David. 
See, that phrase, key of David, it's only mentioned twice in all of the scriptures. But this is an Old Testament reference. It's an Old Testament reference to a story that we read about in Isaiah chapter 22, most specifically Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. Where we hear about a royal servant, a man by the name of Eliakim. And Eliakim, he was a royal servant. And in this day and age, he would almost be seen as like a prime minister or a dignitary. He was a royal priest in that day and age. And as the royal priest, he had authority. And the key of David was given to Eliakim because he was a man of great authority. The key of David was a picture of power and authority. But it's important you understand, and I don't want to go too far into this, but as the royal um, servant of this household, his job was to stand at a door before the king, and he would dictate who would walk through the door and out of the door. There was only one person that could do that. And it was Eliakim because he had the key of David. His job was to literally protect the king and his presence and dictate who walked in the door and out the door. Just a little notice, like, can we make a connection to Jesus here? Jesus is the one that stands between the king and he also stands at the door. And he is the father who is sovereign over salvation. And he dictates who comes into the father's presence. But Eliakim, he says, I hold the key of David. I'm the one who has authority and power, and I am the one that can open the doors. But now in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus says, yo, 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 I am the one who holds the key of David. I am the one who has all authority. I am the one who has all power. Now Jesus says, I have the authority and I have the power. Therefore, I'm going to open a door. I'm going to open a door. And not only am I going to open a door, friends, I'm going to close some doors. I'm going to open some doors, and I'm, I'm going to close some doors. And he tells the church of Philadelphia, everything is going to change because I have the key. When I think about doors, I'm brought back to just a couple months ago, uh, Michelle and I, my wife, we had a, a little gathering at our house, and we were hanging out with some friends, and um, it was celebrating my daughter's birthday. And as people were going in and out of the house, we just decided, let's just leave the doors open. Let's leave the doors open to our house. And we had the sliding glass door to the backyard open. We had a patio door open, and people just come, kept coming in and out from the front door. And as the night concluded, we were wrapping up and cleaning up. But I noticed, like, the house was super hot. How many of you know, like, it's the worst feeling when your house is extremely hot? Now, I'm a chocolatey brother, so chocolatey brothers don't do well with heat, okay? Yes, I said that. Um, so it's, it's stupid hot in the house, like hot, hot, like grandma's house on Thanksgiving Day hot, okay? And I'm like, what is going on? So I go over to the thermostat, and I go to look at the thermostat. It says 85 degrees. How many of you know that's a problem, okay? And as I go over to the thermostat, I'm like, yo, what is going on? So I turn down the temperature, and an hour later, nothing changes. I'm getting frustrated, and Michelle's like, babe, just, just go look at the AC unit and make sure it's okay. And I'm like, babe, it's good. Everything's okay. Like, I've got this. It's going to change. Things are going to change. And an hour goes by. Another hour goes by. Nothing changes. So being the man of God, suck up my pride, I go over to this AC unit only to find a pool of water surrounding our AC unit, okay? Now I got a mess on my hand, and I'm like, Michelle, help! Help! <laughs> Screaming down, Michelle, I start Googling all these different things. We have this massive mess on our hands, all because the AC was overworking itself. You see, the greatest issue in that moment is we had too many open doors in our house. 
We had too many open doors in our house, and because of that, we find ourselves trying to manage a mess. I just think it's so interesting that oftentimes we find ourselves managing a mess in our lives that we made because we forced open doors that God never called us to walk through. I think about how many of us in the room today, we find ourselves managing a mess because we are walking through doors that God has never called us to walk through in this life. And friends, I think some of you in this moment, you find yourself overwhelmed, stressed out, disappointed. You're holding on to anxiety and all of these different things, all because you've walked through a door you weren't called to walk through. But instead of saying, you know what, I messed up, you start projecting this on Jesus. No, Jesus, you messed up. But it's not Jesus that told you to get in that relationship. It's not Jesus that, that told you to, to accept that job because of the paycheck. It's not Jesus that told you to take on that big mortgage that you knew was way beyond what you can afford. It's not Jesus that told you to move over to Channel Side and get that penthouse suite. It's not Jesus that told you to walk through the door. And now here you find yourself trying to recover and trying to manage this mess, but you're, or you're blaming it all on Jesus. I think today we have a generation that's walking through doors. That God has never called us to. And what I've learned in this life is the doors I open on my own, I have to sustain on my own. The doors that I open on my own, I have to sustain on my own. And that's why oftentimes we find ourselves stressed out, overwhelmed, anxious, and even depressed. And I just want to remind you, just because it looks good doesn't mean it's God. Just because she looks good, fellas, doesn't mean it's God. Ask Samson. Ladies, just because he looks good, that doesn't mean it's God. Now, I just believe wholeheartedly God is wanting some of you to be reminded that we need to wait on God. And we need to wait on God and we need to trust that God is going to open a door. We need to believe that he is already opening doors in our life. And I think so many of us were, were waiting on God to open a door of opportunity. Maybe it's a door of opportunity with the job. Maybe it's a door of opportunity financially. Maybe it's a door of opportunity in your career or school or, or calling. And you're asking maybe God to open a door of opportunity so you can step into a relationship or, or find a significant other. I just want to remind you, what if God is using that waiting season as the greatest faith exercise for you in this season of your life? See, one of the things I... Notice to be true even in my own life, when I'm tired of waiting on God, what do I do? I complain. Like, God, why does this have to happen to me, God? Like, why, why do you always give me the short end of the stick, God? Like, God, help me understand. I've been faithful. Why does it feel like this in my life? I think so many of us today, we, we oftentimes complain when we can use our complaining. Instead of complaining, we can start praying. I'm always... Reminding myself, if I can complain about it, I can pray about it. If I can complain about it, I can also give God praise instead of complaining about it. You see, what I've learned is, I don't want you to miss this. Complaining moves me towards negativity, but praying moves me towards God's sovereignty. I, I, I don't want you to miss that. Complaining... It moves you towards living in a realm and a world of negativity. But when you start praying and when you start praising, God shifts things and you start turning to the fact that God is sovereign. When I'm reminded he's sovereign, I'm reminded he is in control. And because he's in control, he will open the right door. He's going to open the door. 
He's going to open the right door for me. And when our focus on praying and praising, I suddenly start to find a sense of peace. I love the old saying. It says this, while you wait on God to open a door, just praise him in the hallway. That's, that's, that's for somebody. God, I've been waiting on her. God, come on, man. When are you going to come through, God? I'm tired of laying my head on this pillow at night alone, God. Can I tell you, friend? Praise him in the hallway. Praise him in the hallway. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. It says this. Jesus says, I, I know your deeds and see I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You see, the door that Jesus is referring to in this text is a door of opportunity for this faithful church to reach people with the gospel and the hope of Jesus Christ like never before. See, the door that Jesus is speaking about is this opportunity that he's going to allow this church to share the good news, to testify, to witness to many people about the gospel. See that word gospel in the Greek, it's euangelion. I'm not going to ask you to repeat that. Euangelion, it means to testify, to, to witness, to share good news with other people. And Jesus is saying to this church, I'm going to open up an opportunity for you to share the gospel. And I'm doing this because you've remained faithful to me. You have held on to my word. You've held on to my promises. You've held on to the hope that you have found in me. So here comes your door of opportunity. I think it's important we get some context here. They're going to put a map on the screen. You see the church of Philadelphia. Let me just be clear. This isn't like a church that was in Philly. Okay. This church was in Asia Minor, on the western part of Asia Minor, which is now actually known as modern-day Turkey. And this was a smaller church that was situated on the corner of Asia. And because it was a smaller church, they often find, found themselves kind of being left out or getting all of the leftovers from people. See, not many people thought about this church, the Church of Philadelphia. Not many people thought about the people in this region in the Church of Philadelphia. And what we learn is this church wasn't influential at all. See, historically, this region, they would experience earthquakes quite often. These earthquakes would lead to ruins all throughout their city. It would ruin their temples. It would ruin their churches. It would ruin their homes. It left them with nothing. And Jesus says, yo, I, I know that you're remaining faithful because you continue to bounce back. In spite of what you've experienced. Not only that, uh, the church of Philadelphia, they also found themselves uh, fighting against a lot of people that would preach a, a false narrative. See, there was a group of people uh, who would call themselves Jews or followers of Jesus, but behind closed doors, they had misplaced motivations. I think we even see that in today's day and age as well. Look at what Jesus says, Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews or who claim to be followers of Jesus, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet, and I will make them acknowledge that I have loved you. See, this church, they, they found themselves with little strength 
They kept finding themselves experiencing hardship after hardship, persecution and challenge and tension. And this is the second time that Jesus repeats that line that I will make those who are a synagogue of Satan fall at your feet. It's the second time Jesus says this in the book of Revelation, in the letter of Revelation. It's likely that these people, like I said, they were coming in the name of Jesus, but they had misplaced motivations behind closed doors. I think so many churches in this day and age, I hate to throw that label of so many churches, but many churches in this hour are doing exactly that. They claim to be a people that are standing on the truth of God's word, but behind closed doors, they have misplaced motivations. They've got an agenda that they are trying to push. And I'm just trying to help some of you understand. It's time that we open up our eyes and realize the truth. We've got to open our eyes. You see, the Christians in Philadelphia, though they were experiencing all of this opposition, though they were experiencing persecution, Jesus commends them because they remained faithful. They remained faithful. Faithful. All these people coming up to them and they were trying to pollute their doctrine. They were trying to get them to participate in uh, pagan rituals and pagan worship. And these, these Christians in Philadelphia, they said, no, 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 no. We're, we're standing our ground. And Jesus, he sees that and he says, because you have been faithful, I am going to bring about a great blessing and a reward in your life. Let's look back. Revelation chapter 3 verse 8. He says, I know your deeds, and I place before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept. Somebody say kept. You've kept my word. Other translations say, you have held on to me. You have clinged to my promises. You have trusted me, and you have not denied my name. I just wonder, when the tides of life come up against you, what do you hold on to? I just think it's so important that when things in life get challenging, we got to actually look at where we're spending our time, what we're thinking about most, where we're going, what we're running to. I think so many of us, when we're uh, going through seasons of opposition and challenge, we start holding on to the things of the world. Maybe for you, When people walk out on you, you start projecting that on God. Maybe for you, when people speak ill of you, you you start holding on to gossip and you start speaking ill words of other people and you start saying harmful things to people that never cut you. You start bleeding on people that never cut you. Maybe for you, when life gets challenging, you start holding on to fear or worry or anxiety or you start holding on to depression or maybe you start holding on to alcohol. Maybe start holding on to drugs. Maybe start holding on to the Bible. What do you hold on to in the tides of life? What's in your hand? What's what's in your hand? What are you holding on to? And I'm telling you, Jesus says, if you're going to be faithful to me, if you want to fully follow me, if you want to call yourself a fully devoted follower, and the opposition and the challenges that come with life, friend, you need to hold on to my promises. You need to hold on to my promises. I can't help but realize that Jesus says to this church, since you've remained faithful, since you've held on to me, I am presenting a door of opportunity. And it's going to bring about great blessing. I want to unpack the blessings that Jesus promises this church. We're going to look at it in Revelation chapter 3, verse 9 through 12. We're going to read a bunch, but I'm going to unpack it. I just want you to see the blessing and the reward that Jesus promises to this church. He says, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come, and they will fall down at your feet, 
and they will acknowledge that I have loved you. Verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, since you've remained faithful and waited on me, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 11, I'm coming soon, says Jesus. So hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. See, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Some of you go, what on earth did we just read? just read some promises that Jesus made to this church. I believe it's promises that he makes to us if we remain faithful. See, the first promise that Jesus makes to the church of Philadelphia is he promises them justice. Read verse 9. He says, those who claim to be Jews, though they are not but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. He says, I know you've got enemies, church, but I want you to remain faithful. Friend, I know that that boss at work continues to belittle you, but I want you to extend them grace and love them just as I love them, and I want you to remain faithful. I know that, that, that sibling or that friend, they continue to put you down and shame you over your past, but I want you to remain faithful to them. I want you to share the love of Jesus with them, those coworkers, that classmate, even your fourth grade teacher, that person that hurts you. That person that lets you down, I want you to remain faithful and show them the same love that I've shown you. He says, yo, justice is mine, says the Lord. You don't need to act out of your emotion. Justice is mine. I've got this. And so many of us today, we, we feel like we're taking up offense with people. And as we take up an offense with people, we feel like we got to act and go about matters in our own hands. And oftentimes, you, you start waging war with the flesh, and you start acting out a character. People don't see the God in you. Just wonder if we're going to be a people who remain faithful. we got to understand justice. That's, that's, that's for the Lord. I, I don't need to wage war with, with flesh and blood. I trust God with that. Second thing that Jesus promises in verse 10 and 11, we see Jesus promises protection. He says, since you've kept my command and remained faithful, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. I don't want you to get lost in this. This is a reference to what we call the great tribulation. See, there's an appointed time when Jesus is coming back. It's his second coming. And as he comes back, as he returns here on earth, everyone and everything that never pledged their allegiance or placed their faith in Jesus Christ, he's going to wage war against them. And the Bible says as Jesus wages war against those who never placed their allegiance or placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they're going to be destructed and defeated. It's going to be a war, but Jesus, he promises for those who have remained faithful, for those who have put their faith and their trust in me, I'm not going to allow you to stand in the middle of the war, friend. I'm going to pull you out, and I'm going to place you in a higher place called the new heavens and the new earth. This is the promises of God. He promises us protection. But not only does Jesus in this text promise protection, he promises strength. Somebody say strength. Verse 12, it says, to the one who is victorious, 
I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Let me just tell you, as, as a communicator or a preacher, sometimes there's just this, this one moment that you just want to get to and just go, we're done. This is that moment. Because Jesus says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You see, as we look at the history of this church, I mentioned it on the front end. This was a church that experienced a lot of earthquakes. And these earthquakes led to ruins in this region called Philadelphia. It destroyed homes. It destroyed churches, it, it destroyed temples, and oftentimes it left people with nothing. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you a pillar. Do you know what a pillar is? A, a pillar is a solid structure, a strong object that is immovable. I just feel like this is good news for somebody in the room tonight. He says, I'm going to make you a pillar. So when the tides of life... When the opposition, when life starts to shake you up, friend, you will not be moved. Not only am I going to make you a pillar, not only am I going to make you strong, I'm also going to place you in the presence of God. He says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. The temple was the resting place of God. It was the place where God would dwell among the people. He says, you're going to find strength. You're going to be planted on a firm foundation. And not just a firm foundation. You're going to be planted in the presence of my God. So when you are disrupted by the tides and the challenges of life, you have no choice but to focus on your Savior and not your situation. Your Savior is bigger than your situation. You're going to be a pillar, a pillar in the house of my God. Fourth thing Jesus says is, I'm going to give you a new identity. He says, I will write on them a new name. See, friend, when, when we remain faithful, when we cling to Jesus, I just want you to know he gives you a new identity. But when I put my faith and my trust in Jesus, my identity was no longer marked. The man who messed up and had a messed up past and sinned and fell short, I now became a child of the Most High King. Became a son of God. I just want to remind some of you in the room, you have a new identity. You're not identified by your past. You're identified as a child of God. He doesn't see your sin. He sees the Savior's blood. That washed away your sin. You're a child of God. As I close, I just kind of was praying through this, and even as I was getting ready to jump up on stage, I said, God, what's the, what's the practical application of this? And God just told me, I just want to see a generation that's faithful to me, Mark. I want to see a generation that understands what it's all about. I want to see a people that understand in the tides of life, the challenges of life, the, the call isn't to, to waver or be tossed and turned by the winds of the waves like Ephesians 3 says. But I want to see a people that stand firm and remain faithful to me even to the end. You see what it looks like for us to remain faithful? It looks like us clinging to the promises of God. It looks like us putting our full trust our full hope in Jesus. It looks like some of you have been waiting on God, really trusting God even as you wait and believing that waiting is working. But most importantly, I believe for this ministry and our gathering, remaining faithful 
It looks like walking through the open door that God is calling us to walk through. See, I just don't want us to, to miss this. See, just as Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia, I'm opening a door of opportunity for you to share the gospel with the unreached and those who have yet to experience my love and my grace and my mercy. So I believe that to be true for this ministry today. God is opening a door right here in Tampa Bay for the young adult ministry of Grace Family Church to rise up and share and show the love of Jesus Christ. This is our hour. I believe that God has called us to this hour to walk through the open door. He wants us to share the good news. He wants us to witness. He, he wants us to testify. He wants us to share the euangelion, the gospel, the good message of Jesus, that Jesus came. He lived the perfect life. He died on a cross. He died so we could have relationship with God the Father again. This is the good news. And I pray, I pray that as Jesus looks down at us, Maybe he's seated there in heaven and maybe he turns to the Father and he goes, Dad, I know things in the world are really messed up. But I know and believe that there are a faithful church in Tampa Bay who's doing the mighty work, who's being faithful to us, who's sharing the gospel, who's spreading the love of Jesus, who's extending grace, who's extending mercy. Let's just pray that Jesus would look down and see that in us. We got to walk through the open door. We got to understand this is our hour. This is our moment to walk through the open door. I was just sharing this with a group of our leaders, nothing but 40 minutes ago. There's a university, University of South Florida, 50,000 people, 50,000 students enrolled in this college. Half of which, which uh, live off campus and in the surrounding areas of, of the university and some of which, which uh, live on campus, but I just believe this is our hour to walk through the door of opportunity and reach USF. I believe this is our hour and this is our opportunity to show college students the hope that can be found in Jesus. See, I was reading this book the other day, and it spoke about this, the, the committed follower of Jesus, the, the person that was really sold out to follow after Jesus. Their ministry is far more effective than a preacher or a pastor's ministry. See, just me as a preacher, I get to see you every day. But you in your workplace and at your college, you see people that need Jesus every day. And I just believe wholeheartedly that when we understand the call of God on our life in this hour is to rise up and walk through the open door. Friends, we talk about a revival. I believe God is going to wake up a people and we will stand in the midst of revival. We got to wake up. We got to understand this is our hour. This is our moment. Your workplace and your workspace, that's your ministry. That's your mission field, your classroom, your colleagues, your coworkers. That's your ministry. That's your mission field. Let's walk through the door. This is our hour. I don't want us to be a people that are passive. I don't want us to be a people who moved with the world. Let us be a people that didn't move with the world but moved people in the world to the heart of Jesus Christ. That's the call of God on this church. That's the call of God on this, on this gathering. We're going to be a people that, that walk through the door of opportunity. I love this quote by a man by the name of Robert Baer. He's a sociologist, 
at the University of California at Berkeley. He says, we should not underestimate the significance of the small group of people who have a new vision of a just and gentle world. You see, the quality of a culture may be changed when just 2% of its people have a new vision. Friends, I just wonder, could you imagine how different the world might look if not everyone, but just 2% of the followers of Jesus would rise up and open their mouth and walk through the door? How different the world might look. As I close, I was driving here um, with a couple friends and God just kind of gave me this, this picture. At Mark, like, you, you guys have an amazing thing happening in Tampa. You still got empty seats in the house. But I want you to know there is more. There's more people that I want to see in the room. There's more people that I don't just want to come and walk through the doors of a church, but I want them to understand I'm opening a door of opportunity for them to be introduced to the grace and the mercy of Jesus. I'm opening a door, Mark. And I want you to tell your people. See, friends, I, I read this book a couple years ago, and it said on average a committed follower of Jesus will share the gospel with about 10 people in their life. With about 10 people in their life. Now, I don't know how much truth is attached to that, but I just thought about it. If Mark and Michelle together share the gospel with 10 people, we reach 20 people. Let's say those 20 people do their part. They, they each reach 10 other people. I'm not too good at math. Extend grace. Say they reach 200 people. But let's say that Mark and Michelle and the staff at the exchange, I want you to stand your feet if you're on staff. There's about eight of us on staff. I know some are serving in the booth and some right here on stage. Let's say the eight of us, we do our part and we share the gospel with 10 people. We reach 80 people, and those 80 people, they share the gospel with 10 people. We reach 800 people. That's a strong church. It's an amazing church. But let's say all the volunteers and leaders in this house, stand to your feet right now. Let's say the 60 volunteers, 70 volunteers, walk through the open door of opportunity that God's calling us to and shares the gospel with 10 people. We reach 600 people. Those 600 people, they do their part. They share the gospel with another 10 people. We reach 6,000 people. Let's just say this. Let's say this. Maybe you've been coming to the exchange for three months or less. I want you to stand to your feet. If you've been coming three months or less, nobody's shaming you. Welcome home. Let's say that's about a... Let's say that's about 150, 150 people. I want you to stay standing. Let's say the 150 people share the gospel with 10 people. Lindsay, fact check me. Is that 1,500? Maybe. That 1,500, <laughs> they share the gospel. They do their part. We reach how many? 15,000 maybe. We're still figuring this out. She said 10,500, somewhere between there. But let's just say everybody in this room stands to their feet. And they walk through the open door of opportunity. 
If all 400 people share the gospel with just 10 people, and those 10 people that they shared the gospel with, they rise up and understand that God is calling them to remain faithful and walk through an opportunity, a door of opportunity, we might actually see a revival take place. And I just believe that in this hour, Jesus said it. There's an appointed time when he's coming back. And it will be at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And I don't know when that time is, but let us not be remiss to miss the open door. God is calling this house to be a people who walk through the door of opportunity. I just want you to stir up your faith and believe that you've got a message in your mouth that can change the life of someone else. I want you to wake up something in your spirit to realize that God wants to use you 